Kia ora. You're listening to a Coalesce Produce podcast, PhD Unpacked. The project really challenges the idea that talking is always helpful and it challenges the idea that anybody can talk to young people about this experience. A podcast where we unpack a PhD thesis over the course of 30 minutes. We need to encourage men to make use of those spaces and that quiet time to work through. And that flies in the face of all the counselling advice and perspectives around, you know, we need to be there to help these young men process and make sense. Well, that's true. But they also need space to work things out in their own head. At PhD Unpacked, we're focused on bridging the gap between research by academics and community experiences in New Zealand. Not everyone has the time to read through a 100,000 word thesis, so we decided to sit down with the authors themselves and breeze through the tidbits and juicy details without all the academic jargon. That may mean that at certain points during the episode, I'll summarize what both James and the author have said. Speaking of which, as well as hearing my voice, you'll hear the voice of the host, James. Kia James and the team have read through the entire thesis to ensure we ask the right questions and get to the core of why this is important to Aotearoa. I'm Yelena and I'll be the narrator throughout the seven-part series and beyond. While James is in the room with the interviewees, I'll be sitting beside you, like that one friend watching their favourite movie, who chimes in every now and again, fills in the gaps and makes sure you don't miss any good bits or laughs at James' expense. Whenever you hear the podcast beats, You know I'm about to come in and say something profound, life-changing, and hopefully meaningful. Today we're joined by Dr. Chris Bowden to discuss his thesis, Silence After Suicide, a phenomenological study of young men's experience of losing a close male friend. Dr. Bowden is currently Academic Director of Mates in Construction and also works as a lecturer in the School of Education at Terangawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. As with everything, the why is central to our understanding, so we start the corridor off with James and Dr. Bowden talking about why he chose to do this particular PhD. But just before we do that, I thought I'd give everybody a trigger warning for this episode. Content in this episode include mentions of suicide and general themes of death and dying. Firstly, can you tell us briefly how and why you ended up writing this PhD specifically? That's a good question. Um, I think there were two main reasons that I took on this pretty big project, to tell you the truth, and it was a personal personal project as well as an academic project. Um, first and foremost, there are very few studies that have been conducted looking at uh, the effects of suicide on the bereaved. Um, in comparison to research on suicide risk and, and suicide intervention and prevention, the postvention area is, is, is a relatively new area. And the number of studies that have been conducted that focus solely on men's experiences is virtually non-existent. And so for me it was very important to give these men a voice and to bring their experiences to the fore and help those who are in the helping professions 
and also friends and family in the community better understand what these men experience and what they need in terms of support. The second main reason that I did this study was for personal reasons. So I myself am a survivor. I lost a number of friends when I was in high school to suicide and some more friends when I was at university as an undergraduate student. And so it's always been something that's been close to my heart and has been a big part of my mahi over the years. And I thought, what what better way than to merge something of a personal journey with also an academic journey of um, bringing some enlightenment around and maybe, you know, gain some understanding myself around, uh, you know, how are young men doing it today? I did it, went through it, but I was really curious as to whether the young men who go through this experience today experience similar things to what I did or maybe something different. So it was curiosity, it was care, it was uh, a desperate need to understand these men's experiences and, and help others understand it. I think desperate need to understand is so appropriate for this topic as a whole from you know personal experience and then the sort of academic psychological uh, perspective and I guess the methodology of a PhD can be really varying as we're learning through this project and how one goes about one's research is sort of entirely dependent on the focus of the research but yours specifically and it's in the title is phenomenological is that how it's pronounced yep (laughs) what a word could you speak a little bit about what that means technically as a definition and why that was so important within your research because it's all about meeting people right and trying to understand their stories in order to form conclusions and i guess with this research that probably was the only way to conduct it right to meet people and sit down and listen to try and understand it really appealed to me because the basic premise of phenomenology is that the only way to understand a phenomenon is to talk to people who have lived experience of that phenomenon, who have lived through it, and who can describe that experience in depth and in detail. So it's not about what people think. It's not about opinions and perspectives. It's really about what have people experienced firsthand. And that really appealed to me with this was, you know, these young men had not been given an opportunity to give a description, give an account of what they lived through. And so to me, it seemed like a perfect fit for the research question and topic. And then I had a couple of decisions to make around what kind of phenomenology to do, because there are different branches and different kinds of uh, different approaches to phenomenology. And I ended up settling on descriptive phenomenology because the descriptions of that lived experience was what was missing. And so I thought, actually, this is a good first step. Let's just get out there. Let's talk to some young men about their experience. Let's record those accounts and let's try and organize them and analyze them and make sense of them and then present them back to the world and say, this is what it was like from their point of view, not from mine, but from their point of view. This is what they say it's like to go through this. And so phenomenology for me was a, a really useful, uh, quite challenging approach to take. You know, you have to set aside a lot of your own uh, assumptions. 
your own thinking, your own frameworks, to be open to seeing things as people see them who have lived through them. And so for me that meant sitting, setting aside a lot of my own personal experience and trying to see it through the eyes of these young men themselves. It sounds like, and having you know read your PhD, that a phenomenological approach allows you to both see similarities in shared experience, but also completely show that there is a real difference based on people's personal experience and their background and all sorts of specific characteristics of people that have lived through experiencing a close friend uh, take their own life. And I'm certainly someone that, uh, you know, I've lost a really good friend in year 10 at school. So it's a sort of experience that I have my own personal version of that story, but I understand that my version of that story does not always apply to everyone else because we all live through that experience differently. Before we go any further, if you're listening and thinking, damn, this is rough, or a bit too close to home, we want to take this opportunity to encourage you to listen only if you have the capacity to do so. Suicide and its bereavement can be triggering topics, and to be honest, this episode isn't going anywhere. It's always going to be here for when you want to listen to it. As you know, we like to start off with the definition section, but prior to that, Chris wanted to outline the current messaging surrounding suicide bereavement and how he thinks it could be improved. The main discourse around not just suicide bereavement, but around all kinds of bereavement is talking is good and talking helps. You know, I, I understand that that is important. But what I found in the research and in the study was that there are lots of reasons why men don't talk and find it very difficult to talk about their innermost hurt, their innermost vulnerability, their innermost pain. And I think it also highlights that silence is not always a bad thing. And sometimes people just need a bit of quiet in order to work things out. Within that, a key idea is the difference between suicide bereavement and other forms of bereavement. Now, as you look at quantitative, more number-based studies that compare to suicide bereaved to non-suicide bereaved, the differences do actually seem to wane. There seems to be more commonality between those experiences. However, when you look at qualitative studies based more on interpreting language, opinions, experiences and meaning, you find suicide bereavement is very different to other forms of bereavement in how people respond. We pick back up in the kōrero with Chris talking about another key difference. Probably the most important one or the most important difference is that it takes longer to work through that grief. And there's a lot of reasons why it takes longer. You know, it can take longer because of the trauma associated with the suicide. It can take longer because it doesn't make sense. There's not always a good reason for why somebody takes their life. There's a lot of unanswered questions. And people are often unprepared. They are overwhelmed. Uh, and there's a real lack of support out there for people who are bereaved by suicide compared to bereavement by other means. 
you know, there are a lot of generic grief services out there for people, you know, that they can tap into and get support from and counselling as well. But when it comes to suicide bereavement, there are very few specific services and programs that are out there dedicated to helping people work through that particular experience. It can also be particularly traumatic for people who have experienced multiple suicide bereavements, you know, and we know with young people in particular, often they've lost more than one person. Uh, so you can get this cumulative grief that builds on previous events and experiences. And I think, you know, coming back to your difference in diversity issue, people deal with grief differently, you know, depending on their age, their stage in life, the relationship they had with the deceased. And there's something quite violent about suicide bereavement. You know, this person has chosen, or maybe not chosen, but being forced into a situation where they feel that they have no other option other than to end their life. And that can come across to the bereaved as rejection, as um, somebody saying, you are not good enough, your, your love, our relationship uh, is not as important as me ending my pain. And so that's something pretty hard for people to grapple with and deal with compared to other forms of bereavement. I was having a conversation with someone recently and we were, we were talking about male-to-male uh, -male friendships versus other friendships. And this friend of mine said something that I, I thought was really appropriate to your research. And she was saying to me that often men have a side-by-side -side friendship or relationship, whereas she has experienced with her female friends a sort of face-to-face -face experience and that those two I guess relationships are really, really different. And it made me think about you know, my own personal experiences, but also the kind of relationship that men often share with each other being a side-by-side -side rather than a face-to-face. -face. And it really got me thinking about how men and young men grieve specifically and exist in different ways to other people. This is by all means the, the time to, to hear uh, your thoughts on how young men grieve specifically and how that is different to other people? Well, it's, it's interesting when you look at how gender influences the way that people grieve, there are very clear gender differences. They're not gender-specific ways, but they are gender-influenced. And by that I mean that, you know, we can have women who grieve in ways that are quite masculine, and vice versa, we can have men who grieve in ways that are quite feminine or people who have blended ways of grieving, you know, that might draw on both styles. But what surprised me in the PhD, because I didn't think that it would go this way, but these young men surprised me because they adhered to quite traditional masculine gender norms around grief. The way they grieved very much reflected how we think men should grieve. And I thought this younger generation might have made some progress and, you know, be more open and expressive and intuitive in their grief and be more likely to share and, and express emotion openly, trust others, and it was not to be. They were stoical. They were silent. They suppressed their emotions, their grief. They stuffed it down. They were reluctant 
to let it out. And they grieved in ways that I think were quite consistent with their version of masculinity that they were living. And so that didn't surprise me that their way of coping with grief and their way of dealing with grief was quite uh, in line with that version of masculinity. There are lots of different versions of masculinity out there, but these young men in particular adhered to versions of masculinity that are quite traditional. And, you know, coming back to your your point about face-to-face versus side-by-side, when they described what they wanted from others that would have enabled or helped them express and work through their grief was that side-by-side grief. That's what they wanted. They wanted a, a companion. They wanted someone who would sit quietly beside them, who would not judge them, who would not be watching them, who would not be in front of them, confronting them, challenging them, asking them to be vulnerable. They felt a lot safer with people who, who would sit alongside them and who were equals. A couple of other key points to fill in some additional context. When Chris mentions masculinity, he says it with the understanding that there are lots of versions of masculinity for each individual. Across the board, Chris noted that these men struggle to communicate, to express emotions, and ultimately let others know what they needed. The thing that led to them feeling like they could open up? Trust. If there was one thing I took away from that stanza, it's that young men are willing to open up when they trust the people around them and the environment they're in. So if you didn't know by now, silence is a key term within the PhD. Chris framed this with four key categories, personal, private, public, and analytical silence. And within those seven key themes, being gutted, stoicism, grieving in silence, being silenced, breaking the silence, being in silence, and analytical silence. Goddamn, that was a lot of silence. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the time to go through every single one that would defeat the purpose of PhD Unpacked. So we asked Chris to speak on some of the versions that weren't necessarily surprising, and others that completely shattered our understanding of suicide bereavement, and also gave a whole new meaning to the term silent treatment. The two that I expected to find, and I did find, uh, was the personal silence and the private silence. So the personal silence was around not having the language. You know, when initially finding out that they're friends, and you know, you touched on how important the relationship is. So these were their best friends. These were other young men who they loved and cared for deeply, when they found out that that person had taken their life, they experienced this personal silence, which was, you know, akin to shock and disbelief. And, you know, they just couldn't speak. They couldn't communicate. They couldn't tell people what was going on inside of them. You know, they were actually unable to articulate exactly what they felt. And yet, They said over and over again, that's exactly what people asked them was, you know, how are you feeling? Well, they couldn't say how they were feeling. There were no words to describe what they were feeling. Like it was so many different things. That one didn't surprise me, but their accounts of that experience, their descriptions of that experience were so powerful and so useful for challenging us around, you know, how do we even go about starting that conversation with young men, you know, during those initial days. 
the second kind of silence, the private silence, was more around the things that they kept private. So they made conscious decisions around what to share and who to share it with. And, you know, they trusted some people with what was going on for them and what they were thinking about and what they were feeling. And, you know, that trust wasn't given lightly and had to be earned. And there were things that people also said that and did that made them less likely to share with those people and to keep things private. You know, when they felt they were being judged or when they felt that people were judging their friend for taking their life, they instantly shut up and they just wouldn't let anything else out. The two that really surprised me were the social science and the analytic science. The social science was really interesting because it looked at, or you know, it included them breaking their silence with certain people that they really trusted, like you know, under what conditions did they let stuff out and, and talk, and you know, for them it was other men, which was really interesting. Men helping men, who would have thought? Um, often they were older men, or they were men the same age who had gone through a similar experience to them, who could connect with them on that level, who they knew understood what they were going through, and so they were more likely to open up to them. And there were also family members, extended family and Fano members who knew the person that they had lost and knew how important that relationship was and what that person meant to them. And they would open up to them and, and share stories around, you know, the good times and what that person's life meant to them. And so that was really important to them. But they were in situations, they often experienced situations at funerals and at tangi where they were silenced, socially silenced by other people, the stigma, the comments, the judgment, or just basically excluded from being able to talk, you know, because their relationship with the, with the deceased was that they were their best friend, but they weren't family. And so often they weren't included in uh, funerals. They weren't given a, a space to talk to share what that person's life meant to them, and they felt really upset about that. So the social silence, you know, the things that happened to them within social contexts could either encourage them to break their silence or further reinforce that silence. But the last silence, the, the analytical silence, was the one that really surprised me. That was the really interesting one, and from a, an educational psychology perspective, is the one that I think creates the most interest and the most has the most practical use. What I discovered was that these young men were making sense of what happened uh, and were doing that through silent reflection in different places. And it was incredible to be a part of that process and to go and witness that as a researcher and be a part of that. But they talked about going to the cemetery and sitting there with their friend and just having a conversation in their head and working things out and chatting to their friend and, you know, reflecting in times when they had a little bit of space and a little bit of silence, when things had calmed down 
when there was a bit of quiet around them, they were able to kind of, you know, take a breath and think, you know, what would, what does this mean for me? You know, how am I going to honour my friend's life going forward? Do I want to just remember the way they died or do I want to focus on how they lived and what they meant to me? And they were working this stuff out, not with other people, but in this space, you know, in this quiet, reflective space. And they would sometimes do it at work or they would do it at home or they would go and visit the cemetery and, and or be driving around in their car listening to music, just thinking about their friend. And to me, it really highlighted that we need to create those spaces. We need to encourage men to make use of those spaces and that quiet time to work through. And that flies in the face of all the counselling advice and perspectives around, you know, we need to be there to help these young men process and make sense. Well, that's true. But they also need space to work things out in their own head. And sometimes with all the chatter and all the talk and all the discussion and all the debate and the argument, they got so fed up with that that they just removed themselves from that situation and would go look for a place where they could retreat and reflect and make sense. And when they did that, they were able to come to an understanding about what happened and really accept it and go, you know what, I can't change this. You know, I don't like what's happened. I don't even understand what's happened or why it's happened. But I have to keep going. And so, you know, it was wonderful to see men taking opportunities to almost meditate, to reflect and think deeply about their experience and, and work it out for themselves. And that one really surprised me. You know, that was not one that I've ever seen in the literature because men don't talk about what goes on in their head. The analytical silence element of the research, I think, for, for the three of us was really that the, the element that we went, wow, this makes so much sense when you take the time to sort of process it. And not to say that any of the versions of silence are, are good or, or bad, that's too surface level, but certainly the analytical silence, as you've mentioned seem to be the element that well we can take this and think about the practical takeaways what impact can that have if we understand that that is a version of silence that's helpful and I guess that that is where I'm next interested to ask you about is you know with understanding the importance of silence and how it can manifest in suicide bereavement what are the implications, you know, what can we do about this, whether it's from a, a community perspective or an educational development perspective or, you know, parents very specifically or, you know, young men specifically? The PhD had a number of implications, you know, for supporting the bereaved and also, you know, supporting young men who are bereaved in particular. I think just being able to recognise those different kinds of science was really important to actually validate those in men and go, you know what, I went, I experienced one of those as well and I'm not crazy, you know, other young men have gone through this and that was part of the reason of doing the PhD was to encourage and, and the young men that I interviewed said that was their motive for actually taking part was so that other young men who maybe read this or learnt from this or, you know, the professionals that I went out and, and trained and taught following the PhD, 
would get a different experience to them, you know, or would have those sciences validated in their own in their own way. The second thing was that I really wanted friends and family to understand that science isn't always bad and that sometimes guys are just processing things. And sometimes there's a really good reason for silence, like I'm not feeling safe or you've made comments that are not creating a, a, a trust between us for me to be able to express myself with you. How do I go about addressing that? I think from a, a counselling point of view, from a professional practice point of view, creating space for silence. I mean, a lot of these guys talked about their interactions with psychologists and counsellors following their bereavement and how the emphasis was on talking and that was not what they wanted. <laughs> like, they needed a place to vent safely but they also needed some space to kind of think through some things before they talked. You know, they, they actually wanted to work some stuff out in their head before they kind of shared those ideas and, and, and uh, the effects on them. And they wanted really practical advice and strategies. And I think, you know, from my point of view, like helping professionals understand and be able to communicate to the bereaved and say, look, it's okay. It's okay if you're experiencing these things. This is just part of the normal process. And, you know, uh, you might feel that you can't talk about this with other people for a while, but then, you know, be open to talking about it when you when you feel you can. Or um, if you need space and time to just process things, that's okay. You know, like, don't feel you have to talk all the time. And I think the biggest issue that it kind of raises is the mismatch the mismatch between somebody's way of grieving and what's often offered and if all we offer is opportunities to talk then we're not really helping these young men whereas maybe what they need is opportunities just to to be with somebody to to sit alongside somebody in a therapeutic quiet presence you know to um, feel that that person is there for them you don't have to say anything. You don't have to try and make it better. You don't have to try and help people make sense of it. You just need to be there for them while they're processing it. So that was one of the biggest lessons I think I took away from this was, you know, helping professionals understand that sometimes uh, young men do want to talk but can't, don't have the language. Maybe you have to help them find that language. Two, maybe provide some safety and some space for them to be able to talk. And three, it's okay to sit in silence with people, but silence makes people incredibly uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but I can sit next to guys and not talk for hours <laughs> and, you know, just play PlayStation or hang out and watch TV. And, and, you know, we give. You're giving to that person. You're giving their time. You're giving your energy to that person. You're being there with them. Sometimes that's enough. What's next and, and where's the hope, I guess, through all of this, the learning, the positives that we can, we can take in? Before you give your answer, I guess one thing that I might suggest from having read your research is seeing your phenomenological experience shows that people will give you trust. If you give them the time, the proof is in, in your pages that even if you don't know someone personally, if you give them the time, the trust will be given. And I think that gives a lot of hope that this is really possible. It is doable if we if we treat it with the the respect that it needs. 
but where's the hope within this this framework and thinking about science and how, how we can move move forward and look at suicide bereavement? I think the hope for me manifests in a couple of different ways. I came away with from talking to these young men and and trying to understand their experience on a quite a deep level was that they all came through this experience changed as a result of it. And it wasn't always bad change. There's nothing that's going to take away that pain and that suffering of losing a close friend or even a family member. But they were all transformed as a result of this experience. And you mentioned that empathy and that care. And what happened was through that analytical silence and processing their grief, they came to understand a part of themselves that they had not really spent a lot of time thinking about. And I would say that they learned to care for themselves and to have empathy and compassion for themselves. And as a result of that, they also had more care and more empathy and more compassion towards others. Like they were more sensitive as a result of this experience. They were more likely to reach out and to want to support others and to be there for others. I think to me that is the huge message from this research that even someone who's been through this horrible traumatic experience has still got something to give and is still hopeful in and of themselves that they can carry on and live a life that is meaningful and honour their friend's memory. The other part of hope that comes from this, I think, is it gives us the non-bereaved and the bereaved, the allies of the bereaved, whatever it is that you want to call us, those that, who are out there trying to support those that are going through this experience, permission to just be there for people. I think suicide prevention is everybody's business. And, you know, Everyone has a role to play. I think a lot of people out there are frightened and scared about doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, making things worse, triggering somebody. And yet you can't really go wrong with listening. <laughs> and a big part of silence is about listening and, and watching, you know, like looking and seeing how somebody is reacting and responding. And so to me, this study highlighted a couple of things. It, and, and it gives me real hope that A, young men will talk about their experience. They will share that experience with the right people. I was a complete stranger. These young men didn't know me at all. And if they'll tell me about their experience because you know they know they can trust me and I spent the time building that relationship with them, so can other people. I think the other part is uh, the courage and the strength that these young men uh, presented with gives me a lot of hope that the young people out there who are going through this will have that courage and will have that strength to make it out the other side. And that's a narrative that we don't often hear. You know, we, we, I didn't go into this wanting to tell a story about how tragic and awful losing a close friend is. You know, I wanted that reality and that truth to be out there and for people to hear it and see it and read it and it's all its awfulness in the words of these young men themselves without any filter, without any 
you know, censorship from me. It's there in black and white. This is what they went through. And I really wanted to give them that voice because trauma silences people. And one of the ways for healing and recovery is to give people a voice. And they all said it was very therapeutic taking part in these interviews and, and taking part in this research. But the plus side of that too is that those stories, I am now using their stories to help others understand that you're not alone. You know, if you're a guy and you're out there and you're going through this, you are not alone in that experience. Other young men have gone through this and get out the other side and are okay. And, you know, these are the things, this is the main message that we don't see. It's the main narrative that we're not hearing in the media. We're not hearing the stories of the bereaved who come out the other side and how they're transformed and how they're changed and how this has made them a more caring, empathetic human being, really. To end the episode, we wanted to include Chris's words about the transformative nature of doing a PhD. It relates not only to this field of study, but anything you may be interested in at home. PhDs are, are transformational in themselves. You know, as a researcher, I think I learned a lot from doing this piece of research, not just becoming a better researcher, but hopefully uh, becoming a better person as a result of it too. And, I, uh, and yeah, I appreciate that um, this is a journey that not a lot of people get to share or do or take uh, for whatever reason. Um, but I think um, what you're doing here, helping make PhDs accessible to people is a, is a wonderful uh, example of um, ex extending the reach of that research and uh, maybe encouraging those people out there who have never thought about doing a PhD to maybe explore that idea in themselves, you know. If you're as passionate about a topic as I am and, and uh, want to uh, pursue this, I would say go for it. A big thank you to Chris for coming on to PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Chris's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. Michael Warren about his PhD, Politics and Sport Don't Mix, or Do They? National Identity and New Zealand's Participation in the Olympic Games. You know, we hear in the media constantly, New Zealand punching above its weight, David versus Goliath. The, the, the underdog, all of those terms which are constantly in our narrative. And, and I always thought, where does the Olympic movement sit in that, in that space, I guess? What is its contribution to the development of, of who we are as a people and who we are as New Zealanders? To keep up to date with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at and Z on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. And before I go... Big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. Hope you enjoyed this ASMR. Ma te wa.